Hey, uh, I don't know about you, but in a few hours, uh, I'm going to be on my couch sitting there taking in a certain game. I'll be one person of the 100 million people, 100 million people taking in Super Bowl 53 between the New England Patriots and the Los Angeles Rams. Um, I appreciated the end of Pastor Mike's email uh, blog this week that said, Go Rams. So I think we know where his heart is, and so if you're a Patriots fan, just know where your pastor is, all right? There you go with that. You know, it's interesting, as you watch that game, as many of us will, as I said, advertisers will spend over $5 million for a 30-second commercial run during the Super Bowl. I would say that's super expensive <laughs> in my book. Uh, a super amount of food will be consumed today. I read a little, did a little research and found out that 1.3 billion, you heard that, billion chicken wings will be consumed today. In my opinion, I would say that our uh, cow from Chick-fil-A, they're doing a good job of convincing us to eat more chicken, even if they can't spell the word chicken. Um, Many of us will consume chips. 28 million pounds of chips will be consumed, and many of those will dip it in guacamole, the 8 million pounds of guacamole that will be consumed today. And if chicken wings and chips and guacamole aren't your thing, then perhaps you'll go grab a slice of the 12.5 million pizzas that will be consumed today. The Super Bowl is not called super for nothing, is it? Uh, it's pretty amazing. It's the biggest sporting event in our nation every year. Well, today at Grace Hills Church, where you are, we have something super we're going to do, something super we're going to tune into, and it's what I happen to call a super text of Scripture. You heard that right, a super text of Scripture. Now, having said that, I just want to say this. We hold that all Scripture is God-breathed, that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we would be thoroughly equipped to live the Christian life. We also believe what Scripture tells us, that all of the Word of God is alive, that all of it is active, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword. That's all of Scripture. So the question that might come up then is if we view all Scripture as God-breathed, all Scripture as useful, all Scripture is active and sharper than any two-edged sword, then what makes a certain piece or passage of Scripture or verses of Scripture super? This guy's lost his mind, maybe you're thinking. Well, let me answer it this way with three words. Here they are. Word number one, context. Word number two, Context. Word number three, context. Context, context, context. Think of it this way in real estate. What did you hear the real estate agent say about that house that you might want? Location, location, location. So the text we're going to look at today is understood in a super way, if you will, within the context that it's placed in, within literally the location of where we find the text. It's interesting, in the NFL season, every game is valuable. Every game is useful. Every game is meaningful in making your way to the Super Bowl, the ultimate goal. If a team doesn't view every game this way, they risk not making it to where? The Super Bowl, the ultimate of where they're trying to get to. Similarly, the 311 verses in the book of Romans 
are valuable. These first 311 verses are useful. These first 311 verses in the book of Romans are meaningful in making our way to the final four verses that we find in Romans 11. This, as I call it, super text of Scripture. If we don't view the first 311, 311 verses with value, with, with understanding, with them being useful, with them having meaning, then we're going to risk missing the significance of the final four verses in chapter 11. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, and you might have in your Bible a certain word that's above verse 33, where we're going to be looking at all the way to 36. Romans chapter 11. You might have the word doxology above verse 33. That's a liturgical word used to respect and say, hey, this is a praise to God. So Paul writes at the end of these 311 verses, he comes to verse 33 and he says this, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given to a gift to him? that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Lord, we thank you for these verses that we see here at the end of Romans 11. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would just illuminate these verses for us, the truth that we look at today. And that, God, you would speak to our hearts where we are about who you are and what you've done for us in our time together. And, Lord, that we would understand what we're to do, as Paul did, when we reflect on what you've done for us before. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So these first 3 and 11 verses come down to these final four verses in Romans 11, 33 to 36. Like the Super Bowl to the NFL season are these four verses. They culminate, it's a crescendo, it's this final moment of this whole thought process that Paul has gone through. In fact, if you have a Bible and you look through it, you'll often see that the book of Romans is broken in half to two parts. This is the end of the first half. And then starting on chapter 12, verse 1, it continues on for the rest of the way through the book of Romans. And so here's what Paul's doing. He's been surveying the history, tracking through what has happened in the history of salvation in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. Paul is in awe of God's work. Paul is in awe of God's extraordinary plan for the world. He is amazed at what God has done. Notice particularly how he begins verse 33. What do you see as the word there? You can answer now. Oh, oh. Now, there's different ways we could say, oh, isn't there? You could say, oh, like, oh, I get it. You could say, oh, kind of way, maybe. I'm not so certain it's either of those. I would submit to you it's more of a, 
an oh wow. And oh, let me take a moment and realize what's just happened. What I've just seen. What he's just written. This moment of oh my. This is Paul's reaction, if you will, to what he's been writing about God's plan for the world and the preceding verses. This is where it comes down to for him. In the time that we have together this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to take the first uh, eight chapters of Romans and kind of go on a run with you <laughs> through those. And then when we get to chapters 9, 10, 11, I want to slow it down to more of a jog. And then when we get to verses 33 to 36, which we just read, we're going to actually move more into a walking speed. Uh, and focus and see what Paul is talking about and why this is so significant, why this is so super in its placement of context and its placement of location with all of Scripture. And then what we're going to do is we're going to see how it presents two important questions we need to answer today. So let's put our running shoes on and go through Romans 1 through 8. Perhaps you've run through this yourself in the past and you've seen certain things that I'm going to share with you and go, oh yes, I remember seeing that on my run through Romans chapters 1 through 8. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul writes about the sinfulness of you and me. I don't know if you've ran through that and seen that, but that we're sinners. We are sinners. Romans 3.23, Paul writes this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Perhaps you've run through Romans and, oh yes, I remember seeing that on my run through Romans chapter 3. In chapters 3 through 5, Paul writes about the forgiveness of sin through Christ Jesus that we remembered here this morning. Maybe there's a verse that you've ran across and seen this before. Romans 5.8, God's demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What else do we see on this run through Romans chapters 1 through 8? Well, in chapters 5 and 6, Paul writes about the freedom from sin that a believer in Christ is able to enjoy as they walk with Christ. Romans 6, 22 and 23 says this, you have been set free, believer, from sin and have become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. You see, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Paul's running through this, this is what he's looking at, this is what he's thinking on in these verses of 33 to 36. Another one that we might run and see is in chapter 7 to 8 where Paul writes about living for Christ now as believers and how we are assured of Christ's love for us. Romans 8, 35 and 37, Paul asks a question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He answers it. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? His answer in verse 37 to the question, what shall separate us from the love of God, is this. No, nothing will separate us from the love of God. In all things, you are more than conquerors, that's believers, through him who loved us. This is what Paul is reflecting on as he writes 33 to 36. In other words, chapters 1 through 8, Paul wrote about the sinfulness of man and God's love for sinners. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So we've run through that. Let's slow down a little bit as we might be kind of tired going through that and look at verses 9 or chapters 9, 10, and 11. In chapters 9, 10, 11, what does Paul do? What Paul does in writing 9, 10, 11 is he focuses on God's chosen people. That's Israel. He looks at them and notes that, hey, here's Israel's past. Here's Israel's present from the time that he's writing this. And here's Israel's future, which could be considered now and future beyond where we are now. So he's written about that in chapters 9, 10, 11. A couple thoughts on this. First is this. Paul reminds us that God chose Israel. He chose them to be his sons and daughters. In other words, Scripture talks about that God adopted them into his forever family. That's what God did. Paul asks, though, an important question in these verses found in chapters 9, 10, 11. Did Israel do something (laughs) to earn this favor from God? Why them as opposed to another nation or another people group? Why did they get chosen by God? And his answer is that they did nothing. (laughs) They didn't do anything to earn this. So then why did God choose Israel? Why were they his chosen people? Well, simply put, it was God's choice. It was God's call. It was God's decision. In Romans 9, 15, it says that God will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Again, it's God's choice. Sometimes we hear it as the word election, that God elected those whom he would save. He chose Israel. He elected them. Second thought that Paul reminds us of is that when Christ came, many of those Israelites rejected Christ. Some received him, but many, if not most, rejected their Savior. We read that, about that in the Gospels and see how that led to the crucifixion of Christ. So as you think about this and process this, what happened then? Well, God directed Paul, despite the rejection that his chosen people, Israel, is behaving like, to go to another people group. That's known as the Gentiles. So if you're not Jewish, that means you're a Gentile. Hello, join in with the Gentile club. That's where I am placed in God's order. So then, why did God choose Israel? Why did God choose Israel? Gentiles then? Well, it's interesting. It says in Romans 10, 13, as we're jogging through here, we happen to see this verse. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That means Gentiles. That's us. That's me. That's you for many of us. Why did God choose Gentile sinners? Did they earn it? Well, you're seeing where I'm going with this. Of course not. They didn't earn it because we go back to Romans 9, 15, where God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Simple, period, done. God's choice, God's call of how he's worked this out. Now, for those of you who may or may not be NFL fans, uh, there's a thing called the draft that happens every April. And I don't really tune into it other than to see some college players that maybe I followed to see if, where, if they get drafted or, and where. But there's a unique part of this, and it's this. Every player 
unless they came in as a free agent, for those of you who know football. <laughs> but every player, basically on the New England Patriots, that's playing in the Super Bowl today, and every player that's on the Los Angeles Rams was selected, was elected, was chosen, was drafted by a particular NFL team. Maybe not the Patriots or the Rams, unless they're still with them from day one, but they were chosen, they were drafted, they were selected and chosen to be on that team. Similarly, God drafted or selected or chose or elected Jews and then Gentiles to be, if you will, on his team, to be a part of his family, to be adopted as sons and daughters. However, what's different about the NFL draft where they have to earn their way and prove that they are worthy to be on the team and therefore make the team, we, on the other hand, couldn't have done nothing to earn our way to be with God. The only way this happens is because God has chosen us unconditionally. God's chosen and said, I'm going to choose you to be my son, to be my daughter. It's God's choice. And so in these first 311 verses of Romans, Paul has traced out God's sovereign plan for saving the world and what he was up to and what he did. So Paul wrote about our sinfulness as human beings, but that Christ came to forgive sinners because he loves sinners, that he has a plan for us. And so we see of God's love and God's mercy and God's just compassion for sinners. It's with that whole picture in mind, all that we've just ran through, jogged through, that we come down and walk through this text right here that Paul is writing here in Romans eleven thirty three. Look back at it again. Oh, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God in his extraordinary plan of salvation. That's where Paul is coming to. And as we'll see here, if you watch the Super Bowl today, you will maybe hear in your household or around neighbors, there might be some outburst of cheer and clapping and hooting and hollering, this elation, this joy, this excitement. Well, Paul's not cheering for any Super Bowl team today, but he is cheering. He is in elation. He is in joy. He is clapping. He is in joy over what God has done, hence what he's written here. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He is amazed. He is blown away to pause and to think, look at what God has done. To help us maybe grasp this a little bit in this word depth, the third word in this verse here. Think of it like this. What kind of depth are we talking about? How can we relate to this? Well, think of it as the Mariana Trench. I don't know if you're familiar with the Mariana Trench, but if you were to take a, a cruise ship out of San Pedro and head uh, west towards Japan, and maybe specifically towards Guam, you would come upon the Mariana Trench. The Mariana Trench is the deepest place on the point of, of any place on, the, on earth. It is 36,070 feet deep, nearly seven miles deep. That is the depth we're talking about, the deepest place on the planet. Let's go to the other extreme. Let's not go into the ocean. Let's take a plane out of LAX and head over to Nepal. And let's, as a second service, go climb Mount Everest. And so let's say we imagine that we're going to go climb that 29,029 feet, 
100 feet to get up to the top. It's nearly six miles tall. It's the highest point on the planet. So work with me for a second. We have the lowest place at 36,036 feet, nearly seven miles deep. And we have the highest place, the mountain. And let's bring them together. Let's imagine that you use your Tonka trucks, your grandchildren's Tonka trucks, and we were able to move miraculously this mountain, Everest, and drop it in to the Mariana Trench. If you did that, the tip, the highest point on our planet, would still be a mile below sea level. It's with this concept for me, hopefully for you, that gets me to grasp what kind of depth is, is, is Paul talking about here regarding the wisdom and the knowledge and the riches of God? Depth of riches of God's love and grace and mercy and kindness towards sinners. Who has greater riches than these? Well, the answer would be, that would be no one. How about the depth of the wisdom of God's perfect plan and working through his son, Jesus Christ, who has greater wisdom than this? The answer would be no one. Depth of knowledge, God's foreknowledge in choosing who to save. Who has greater knowledge than this? That would be no one. So Paul is astounded, amazed by what God has done. It causes him to burst out in praise when he reflects back on these, all these verses and comes to this point with this doxology. So how about us? Why should we praise God for his extraordinary plan of salvation? Today, tomorrow, next week, as we live our lives, why should we praise God for his extraordinary plan in saving you and saving me? Three reasons. One, because God's knowledge is infinite. God's knowledge is infinite. Look again back at verse 33. Paul asks this question, how unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable or immeasurable his ways? This is taken from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, the first part of it, where Isaiah asks this question, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? The answer, that would be no one, but God and God alone, right? God's knowledge is exhaustive. He knows all there is to know about every molecule and every thought that we could ever think in the universe. Jesus told us that the number of hairs on our head are numbered and that a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without God knowing that or allowing that. Paul's point is that while God has graciously revealed the broad spectrum, the broad flow of the, his plan of salvation history, none of us could have figured this out on our own without God interceding for us and revealing it to us. Thus, none of us can compare with God's infinite knowledge. That's a reason why we should praise God. Here's a second reason why we should praise God in his extraordinary plan of salvation. It's because God's wisdom is infinite. God's wisdom is infinite. Look at verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or how about another question? Who has been his counselor? Well, this comes also from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, the second part of it, which asks this question as Isaiah wrote this. What man shows him, that's God, his counsel? The answer, that would be no one. No one does that. 
If you really think about it, question in verse 34, it's kind of humorous. I mean, imagine God coming to you because he couldn't figure something out. Imagine God coming to, to say, man, I've got this problem, and whew, man, I need, some, I need some advice. I need some help trying to figure this out. And he decided to come to Grace Hills Church, and he says, where's somebody that appears to be very wise? At least people go to him for counsel all the time, maybe legal counsel. So let's say they all came to see Warren. Or you could see Jeannie. She's also as a counselor. And let's just imagine for a moment that God comes to them and says, hey, I want to sit with you in your office because I've got some things I need to get figured out. Could you help me? Now, I don't want to belittle the intelligence of Warren or Jeannie, but God's not going to do that, is he? And are we thankful? We're not sure how to quite respond with them in the room, but the, yeah, he's saying amen, right? This is God. He is, his wisdom is infinite. And yet, as I use that analogy, think of it this way. Ask yourself this. Be kind of like, ugh, for a moment. How many of you have ever thought or prayed in a certain circumstance or certain situation, um, God, let me give you some advice. Or how many of you ever thought or prayed, God, um, I think on this one, you need to do things my way. We've been there. And yet, it's futile. It's crazy to think such a thing that we could do that. Another way to understand this perhaps is this way. Um, remember last month I was speaking, I shared a story about my friend Jimmer, a good friend of mine and, and all that, and he got saved and whatnot. Well, let me just back up that story just for a moment. Um, when I was a senior in high school and I was getting ready to graduate from college, my aunt and uncle, who raised me from ninth grade on, took me in after my parents went to be with the Lord, looked and said, hey, we need to do something for a college ministry. In doing so, they saw a person in the church at that time. His name was Alan Barnes. Alan Barnes' mom is somebody who was attending this church for a very long time until she went to go live next to Alan up in Watsonville, and that's Nancy Barnes. What's amazing is, is my aunt says, Alan, would you be our Sunday school teacher? He does, and the story goes on, as you might imagine. He feels a call to ministry, is in pastoral ministry, and has for many years. And so if we go back and go forward for a moment to just a couple years ago when Alan was here with his wife Heidi and their son Jake and Grant, as he started reflecting on this, he says, you know what, Bill, if it wasn't for your loss, I never would have been in that college group, which means I never would have met Heidi, which means I never would have had Jake and then had Grant and I never probably would have been a pastor in ministry. I'm like, wow. I never thought of how God's worked all that out. Bring back my buddy Jimmer in here. Guess who gets saved in that college ministry? He does. Again, when we look at God's wisdom and how he's worked out his plan, his extraordinary plan of salvation, we go, praise God. A third reason why we should praise God for his extraordinary plan of salvation is because God's riches are infinite. God's riches are infinite. Look at verse 35. Oh, who has given 
a gift to God that he might be repaid, that we could say, oh, now we're even, God. I gave something back to you. Job 41.11 asks this question. Who has first given to me, God asks Job this, that I should repay him? That would be no one. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. In other words, God owns every planet. God owns every planet in our solar system. God owns every star that we've ever looked at. God owns every galaxy in existence beyond what we can even see. God owns the entire universe. The point is is that God lacks nothing. God's riches, therefore, he lacks nothing. God didn't need to create us, much less save us and offer a plan to save us. But it is totally God, and it's God himself alone who has done that. We've done nothing. Which brings us to say, well, that's salvation. What about everything else in life? Well, let me ask it this way. Why should we praise God in all things beyond salvation? Good question. I appreciate you asking that that question. Let me give you three answers. Number one, three reasons. Because God is the source of all things. Look at verse 36. It says, Paul writes, from him are all things. In other words, God is the creator. Nothing has come into existence without God speaking it, without God forming it, without God designing it. That is all God. Regarding our spiritual birth, how we came into a relationship with Christ, John 1.13 says, Born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is all God. He is the source. You know, friends, Grace Hills Church doesn't exist without what God has done, which means our friendships that we have here, our blessings that we received here, don't exist without God. God is the source of everything that we have. He, it is all from him are all things. That's why we should give him praise. Here's another reason that Paul writes, because God is the sustainer of all things. God is the sustainer of all things. Look at verse 36 again. It says, through him, through God, are all things. In his omnipotence, God sustains everything that is alive. Over every tribe, every, every nation, every people group, every living thing. In every breath that you've ever taken, every meal that you've ever eaten, every blessing that you've ever been given, it's been done so that God could sustain you, whether physically or spiritually or whatever, to make your life abundant, which is what Jesus came to give us. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. I've seen this happen in my own life with the birth of my son and the journey of that when Pam was pregnant with him. He had a two-strand umbilical cord. You're supposed to have three. And I asked the question to the doctor, well, what can we do? And they said nothing except we could pray. Nothing could be done medically for him. So it's all God. God, you're going to have to be the sustainer of this life then. And, and, and he did. And he answered that prayer. Why should we praise God in all things? Lastly, third reason, because God is the focus of all things. God is the focus of all things. It says here at the end of verse 36, to him, to God, are all things. 
In other ones, no one can take credit as the source or the sustainer or of anything in this world. We are not the focus. God is. One of the resources I go to to help me with this is, is a website called IamSecond.com. IamSecond.com, just spelled out just like it sounds. These are just over 100 uh, testimonies. People who have come forth and said, here's the journey of my life. It comes down to this. I'm second to God. God is the center of everything. God is the focus of everything. Think of it this way. Have you ever been driving with somebody and you're in the passenger seat and they're kind of distracted by what it is that's beside either side of you? And you said, hey, could you keep your eyes on the road? Or you have seen someone else and you're like, would you stop looking at your phone and keep your eyes on the road? The same concept here, the same idea is that the focus is to be on God and God alone. Speaking of spiritual gifts that receive at the moment of salvation, 1 Peter 4, 11 says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So besides salvation, why should we praise God in all things? Because from him and through him and to him are all things. That's what Paul is celebrating here. That's what Paul is bursting out in praise over at the end of this chapter, the end of this first section of the book of Romans. Therefore, do you notice how he concludes it? To him be the glory forever. To him, to God, be the glory forever. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.31, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord, in him alone. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. That's why we exist. So when Paul is reflecting on this extraordinary work that God has done, this salvation after writing these 311 verses, when Paul does that, when he reflects on everything that God has done from him and through him and to him, he goes, to God be the glory forever and ever. And every prayer that I've basically heard has a what at the end? Amen. And I put it in there in your notes and remember the amen. Amen. Paul wants you to say amen to all that is written in Romans chapters 1 through 11. Paul wants you to say amen to the journey of salvation's history in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Paul wants you to say amen to what God has done for you. Because your response, my response, our response as a church should be amen to what God has done. I mean, you stop and you think about it. After all, who could have done what God has done? That would be no one. Father, we stop and we thank you for this moment to stop into your word. This amazing four verses that Paul came and bursted out in praise and recognition for God what you had done in this journey of life with us sinners in loving us and making a way for us to have a relationship with you. Oh, God, may our mouths, our minds, our actions, our days be filled with praise for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.